You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. And Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, Lord, as we uh, come into a Christmas season, we look at your word, and Lord, we see this incredible promise before us. Lord, you say, ask. You say ask, you say knock, you say seek. You tell us that there is so much before us that we can look at you and you're a good father that wants to give good gifts. You don't play tricks on us. You don't hold good things away from us, but you also don't always give us what we ask for because sometimes we ask for bad things. Lord, you're a good father. And so Lord, just in that truth, Lord, I ask so many things. Lord, I ask that you would be present and among us. Lord, I ask that you would lean our hearts in a place that might be uncomfortable, but there we would find life. I ask that we would find more joy and more hope, that we would walk into the Christmas season. Lord, I ask that you would raise something up in our soul, the thing that maybe we're scared to ask, because what does it mean about my faith if you say no? But Lord, I pray that we would just ask. Lord, I pray that we would have trust. Lord, I pray that we would ask for anxiety to be loosened and, um, Lord, disenchantment in our soul to be lifted. Lord, I pray that we would ask for you to move, whether that's spiritual, emotional, or bodily, that you would move and you would heal and we would just ask. Lord, I pray we'd have courage to ask for loved ones who are far from you, that there would be repentance and change of heart and reconciliation. Lord, I ask that by a special gift of us coming to declare your glory and your worth, that you are worth all of it. Lord, that there would be a, a remnant of your spirit that would reside here. And Lord, students and faculty would find more courage and more hope, that there would be a sense that there is a God who sees them and loves them. And Lord, there would be an open heartedness, Lord, that you would bless those. Lord, I pray that you would draw people close. Lord, I pray that you would restore marriages, that you would restore father, son, father, daughter, mother, son, mother, daughter relationships. I pray that you would bring repentance. Lord, you'd say to ask. Give us courage to ask. And courage to say, man, it's not dependent on me having enough faith. I just need a little bit of faith. And maybe the faith that I need is just the humility that ask. Jesus, we need you. I pray that you would use Brandon's words and you would use the scriptures and your spirit would lean us into places and we would find life through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. As Casey said, my name is Brandon Williams and I'm the director of youth and missions here at Free City. I'm also a part of a thing we call the preaching cohort. Just some guys that come together Tuesday mornings and we open the word and we just try to figure out what does this mean? Um, and so, man, if this is your first time here to Free City, we are so thankful that you are here with us today. Um, if you're a regular, you are probably thrown off by Casey coming up and reading um, and you're probably like, who's gonna preach? And then you hear the youth director and you're like, yes, we're gonna get out of here early today. Well, last time I preached, it was 52 minutes. So uh, sorry to, sorry to, but I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just doing what I'm told. I'm just doing what I'm told. 
Um, I wanna start with a story. We're talking about gifts, so it's natural that we should start with a Christmas story. So all growing up, there was one thing I wanted more than anything in the world. It was a fish tank. And I know what you're thinking, that's pretty simple. Your parents should love you enough to give you a fish tank. Well, mine didn't for a long time, (laughs) all right? Um, And so I remember just asking and asking and asking, and every time getting more and more disappointed when I didn't get it. Um, Well, finally, I got to middle school, and you know in middle school you think you can create a logical argument. I'm like, it will teach me responsibility. I'll be a better person because of this. I just need the fish tank. And so, woke up Christmas morning. I was one of those mischievous kids who I would stay up till like 2, 3 a.m., and then I will just go downstairs because I wanted to see um, what was there. I couldn't wait till the morning. And I get there and I'm going through gifts. I mean, I'm throwing things. I have one thing on my mind and it's the fish tank. I get to the last thing and it's in a box and I'm like, I've never opened a fish tank, so I don't know if they come in boxes or what they come in. So I open it up and it's a fish tank, but it wasn't quite what I was expecting. It was about a 22 inch TV that you plugged in the wall. And when you plugged it in the wall, fish swam across. (laughs) And so then I learned that my parents had a sense of humor. Um, and they're going to listen to this, and they've still never given me a fish tank. So, <laughs> But isn't that how it is with God sometimes? Um, we ask God for something over and over and over again. And when he doesn't give it to us, it can be almost devastating. It can lead to questions like, God, am I even important to you? Do you even hear what I have to say? And then it leads to the question of, well, what does it have to say about me when God doesn't answer my prayers? He must not care about me. He must not see me. Maybe I'm not important. And so as we dive into this text today, That's one of the things we're going to look at. We're going to look at that we have a promise that regardless of how our prayer request turns out, we have a promise that there's a good God who only gives good gifts to his children. That's our main point. We're going to go back to that over and over again. God is a good God who only gives good gifts to his children. So we're going to have three main points, and they're going to be Jesus calls us to pray continuously, Jesus calls us to love others counterculturally. And in the last one, Jesus calls us to live differently. I'll pray and then we'll get started. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to meet here. God, I thank you for the people in this room. You have brought us here um, from all over the country. And God, you have brought us here under the common purpose um, of Free City and more importantly of your church. So God, as I unpack the scripture today, I pray that you would give me wisdom and discernment. Um, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that would be penetrated by the truth of your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So the first one, Jesus calls us to pray continuously. We're gonna look at verses seven through 11 here. Verse seven, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? There is something we need to address up front before we go any deeper into this. This text is often twisted and manipulated for what we would call the health and wealth prosperity gospel. Um, It is saying that no matter what your ask is, God will grant it. And often it's followed by, hey, if you give enough, if God's not listening to you, maybe you're not giving enough, maybe you're not working enough. And so when we're talking about this free city, this campaign, we don't want you to give with this sense of, hey, God owes me. We want to give with this sense of, God, you have gifted me so much, I can give this back to you. And so this isn't the, 
God wants you to be rich or God wants you to be healthy. All you have to do is do this and he'll grant that. Um, D.A. Carson has a great um, sentence about this. He says, what is at stake with this text is an accurate picture of God. And if that is what is at stake, then we need to diligently look at this passage um, for what it means. So the focus of this portion of the Sermon on the Mount is prayer. So before we dive in, I wanna take a step back um, and really define what is prayer and start with what it is and what it is not. First, what it is. Prayer is humbling ourselves by admitting our fragility, our brokenness. We start with that. We start with, God, I have to come to you because I can't do it myself. I am not enough. But then, quickly followed behind that, we acknowledge God's good character, his perfect holiness. We say, God, I am not enough. But what this scripture says is that I come to you and you will listen. And even more, it says you are good. And this is where the hard part of prayer comes in. Prayer is knowing God answers according to his promises and his divine character. What that leaves us with is we have to admit we're not in control. When we come before God in prayer, what we have to admit is we are not the one in control. And then what prayer is, it's asking, knowing that God is listening intentionally. And he wants us to talk to him. Even more, the God who created all things, who has all glory and power, he leans his ear to us, despite how broken we are. That is what prayer is. God loves us enough to listen. What it's not, if you're in here and you are skeptic, you're kind of on the fence about this Jesus thing, what I really encourage you to do is just for a moment, what if prayer is not just talking to air? What if there is actually a higher being, a person of God on the other side that is listening to what we have to say? What if? Another thing, prayer should not be focused on you or myself solely. A characteristic of a healthy prayer life is focusing on others. What it's not is us presenting our life plan to God, acting as if we know best. God, I've thought it all the way through. This is all you have to do, and it'll work out great. Trust me. And then this one, guys, don't act like you haven't prayed this one before. Prayer is not looking across the aisles at church saying, God, that's the one. She just doesn't know it yet. All you have to do is make her know it, and that's it. That's not what prayer is. And what it's definitely not is making a deal with God of saying, God, if you do this, then I'll do this. Because it's easy to say that, but it's not easy to follow up on it. And finally, something we need to address before we get into this text. Um, we do not always receive what we ask for. We're gonna look at an example with Jesus and the Apostle Paul. We don't always receive what we ask for, but we can trust God gives us what is best, not always what we ask for. And so, Jesus, we see this in Luke 22, verse 42. Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9, he says, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. What Paul's saying here is, God, if this is good for me, then leave it. It hurts. But if it's gonna conform me to the likeness of Christ himself, then I want it more than my comfort.
So as we look at the Sermon on the Mount in context here, previously we've heard Jesus say, pray like this, what we would call the Lord's Prayer. Pray like this, and then he models prayer. But now what Jesus is saying is, now that you've seen pray like this, now I want you to have an assurance and confidence that when you pray, you are heard. What we see here is it says, ask and you will. Seek and you will. Knock and you will. Um, Those words, ask, seek, and knock, they're in the present imperative, which means now and in the future. So present and future sense. So what we could really say is, ask now and keep asking. Seek now and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. It's a call for habitual and continual action. And specifically in this text, it's prayer. Pray and keep praying. Ask and keep asking. Seek and keep seeking. Knock and keep knocking. I was reading one of the commentaries and a story they picked is, it's like a kid in the backseat on a road trip. Constantly, every five minutes, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? A danger in that is seeing God as the dad driving that says, shut up, we're not there yet. But that's not, that's not what God's calling us to here. What God's calling us to is, yes, yes, keep asking. Keep saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Keep. Because Jesus is painting a picture of a praying heart that knows its prayer is being heard. So how do you see God when you pray? Do you envision God as a father who says, here you are again? Really, that's what you want? That's what you wanna ask me for? Do you think you deserve that? Or do you see a God, God as a father who's on the edge of his seat, leaning in in anticipation, saying, whatever it is, just ask. I already know, but I want you to ask. I want you to come before me. I want you to say, God, this is what I need. And his promise is, I hear you. I'm here for you. And I love you. And I may not give it exactly that way. But what I give you, I promise it will be good. And oftentimes it will be better than what you could ever imagine. Sorry, wrong page. All right. So overarching, looking at what is the goal of prayer, it is not a selfish desire to receive something asked for. What if, what if prayer, the goal of it was just to be in the presence of God? To be able to come before a God and say, here I am, this is what I think I need. God, I know you know better, but I'm gonna ask this because you've asked me to. A commentary notes, the basis of prayer is union with Christ and his purposes rather than a selfish craving. The goal of prayer is to be with God. We pray to God to talk to him. We pray to God to hear him. But what we need to understand about prayer is we're praying to a person who has characteristics And what we need to know is God acts only according to his divine characteristics and his attributes. God is perfectly just, perfectly holy, perfectly perfect, perfectly righteous, perfectly loving. And yet we expect him to answer from our perspective. We are finite, which means we are in this moment. We are not one second in the future. We are not one second in the past. We are here and now. And God is not, he's infinite. He's outside the constructs of space and time. And what he does is he looks and he has our whole life laid out and he sees this moment and he sees our ask and he says, I hear you, but I need you to trust that I see the bigger picture. And I'm gonna answer from that because I want what's best for you. Even more than what you want is best for you or what you think is best for you. And so when we look at ask, seek, knock, it requires us to admit something first. Before we ask, we have to admit that we don't know the answer. 
Before we seek, we have to admit that we don't know where something is. Before we knock, we have to admit we're on the outside of something wanting to look in. And so one of the things I wanna say, if you find yourself struggling with prayer, I often find myself struggling with prayer and oftentimes all I have to do is look inside and I see a root of pride. That's saying, I don't have to ask for that. I can just do it. Oh, I think I need this. Instead of taking a step back to ask God, to talk to God, to seek God's will for this, I take a step in and say, I can do this. It's right there, I'll just take it. But that's not what prayer is. Because when we look inward, we see we are vulnerable and susceptible to sin. Our pride elevates us above God and then we look down on God. A man who is looking down on God will never feel a need to pray. But also we find ourselves in this hard place of it says asking it will be given. But it doesn't say when. And I say there are a few things harder in the daily life of a Christian than waiting upon the Lord. Especially when we're waiting upon the Lord for something that we think is good. And I want to enter into this very carefully. Because there are people in this room where we know people that are asking for good things and God hasn't answered that prayer. Some of you in here may be asking for a child. That is a good thing. Some of you may be asking for a spouse. That is a good thing. Some of you are sick and are asking for healing. That's a good thing. Um, my wife, Hannah, one of my favorite things about being at Free City is I'm still known as Hannah's husband, um, first and foremost, which I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. Um, but my wife, Hannah, some of you may know this, some of you may not. Um, she has suffered from chronic stomach pain for over four or five years. She's gone to doctor after doctor and heard the same thing. There's nothing we can do. And that's hard. And we've often found ourselves praying. Ethan encouraged me to like lay hands on her and it's weird, but like we do it because we're like, God calls people to do this, so we're gonna try it. And we're laying hands on her and we're praying, God, would you heal? And he hasn't yet. And so right now, this promise isn't easy to believe. Yet, we trust in this truth that if God did not withhold his son, then he will not hold anything from us, whether that includes healing or not. And another truth is he's sitting with us in this waiting. He's there with us. He's listening. He's there. And more than anything, he's saying, I love you. So this command in this text is a command to trust God and be patient with God. When we're asking and seeking and knocking, that requires patience during the time. We are called to be patient because we know that God does not have evil laid out for us. He desires for us to knock and open the door to something good. The problem arises when we don't see the full picture God has and we begin to seek instant gratification. I don't wanna oversimplify this because hurting is real, but we can ask for good things like a child or healing or a spouse and trust God's love for us is not determined by whether we receive the ask or not. We can ask for good things like a child, healing, or a spouse and trust God's love for us is not determined by whether we receive the ask or not. God's love for Hannah is not determined by if he chooses to heal her in this life. The cross showed us God will allow nothing to separate his children from himself. Whether that is pain, sorrow, there is nothing that will separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. And that is the God that we can pray to and continually keep praying to. Next in the text, we see um, in, in verse nine, or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Or if then, 
who are, if you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? We are called to approach God like a good father who loves his children. One thing about children, they're dependent on their parents. There's not much they can do apart from their parents. Um, We have an assurance that God will answer, but sometimes it's better for the parent to answer from their vantage point, not ours. Apparently my parents thought I was not ready for a fish and they think I'm still not ready for fish. Or if you were here last week, I fully agree with Casey. His son Cruz does not need a bazooka. Um, Don't fight back. Parental oversight is good. Cruz does not need that. And so if even an evil father will not withhold the necessary essentials like bread and fish from their child, Jesus given us assurance, how much more will a God that loves you way beyond any father, how much more will he give you something good? Just ask. The promise of this verse is God will answer. But he doesn't answer according to us or our ask or what we've done to deserve an answer. He answers according to three things. He answers according to his promises, his character, and his vantage point. God answers according to three things, his promises, his character, and his vantage point. Um, One of my recent asks is being, God, give me a heart of empathy. Um, Some time ago, I was sitting across from a friend who is pouring their heart out to me, talking about the hardest thing they've ever been through. And I remember walking away and just being just not empathetic, just having a heart of like, mm. And in that moment, I stopped and I was like, whatever that is, God, take it. I don't want that. And so I started praying for an empathetic heart, a heart that sits across from someone and feels what they feel. And... Now, if someone says like a slight hardship, I'm like tearing up. Um, But what I want to say about that is the first time I prayed that prayer was over four years ago. And I still don't have an empathetic heart. I'm still messed up. But what I know is that God is answering my prayer. And this text affirms me to just keep asking. Just keep asking. And then... The next thing we see, God gives us good gifts despite our evil nature. Um, And how we see this is, man, I think back to my life. There are plenty of times when I asked for a snake and God gave me a fish instead. Or I asked for a stone. I thought it was bread. I thought it was essential. And God was like, dude, you have no idea. And I asked for something evil not knowing it. But God, what he gave me was something good. He gave me bread. He gave me a fish. And once again, what's at stake here is an accurate picture of God. God is not a close-handed evil being. He is not a hateful, distant God who created his children and left them to fight on their own. He's not looking upon humanity, just waiting for them to mess up one more time so he can bring his wrath upon them. God will never mock your prayers. I don't know about you guys, that's a big fear of mine. God will never mock your prayers. Jesus painting the Father as someone who delights in bringing good gifts to his children. He would never look upon our ask for a deep need and bring an evil response. He will never give a snake to us. And yet, we, expire, we, we expect the immediate and desire the expedient when God sees the whole picture coming together. We see a need and we ask for an answer out of impatience or a covetous heart. Well, God, if they have this, you must love them more than me. Or God, I've asked for that. Why did you give it to them instead of me? God sees and hears us. Then he answers perfectly according to his character, promises, and his vantage point. And the reason we know this 
It's because the best gift God ever gave us was his son, Jesus Christ. If God gave us that gift, there is no gift that is good that he will withhold from us. One of my favorite Old Testament stories is Mephibosheth. And if you know anything about Mephibosheth, he is the grandson of the king Saul. He was also lame. At that time when a new king would take over, they would take out the entire lineage. And also if you were lame, it was better to be dead than lame because you brought no help to the society. And so King David made a promise to Jonathan, who was Mephibosheth's father, Um, And so David seeks out someone to bring grace upon and show grace to. So David calls Mephibosheth before his throne. And Mephibosheth had to know going walking in, I deserve death, I can't hide anymore. The king is going to rightfully kill me. And yet David leans in and says, brother, welcome. And Mephibosheth's response is, what do you have to do with a dead dog such as I. And David says, you have a spot forever at my table. It doesn't matter about who you are, what you've done, what matters is that you have a place prepared for me. And so this is a beautiful picture because it's not hard to see the gospel in that. We come before the throne of Jesus And instead of death, we are gifted life. Instead of shame, we are gifted righteousness. Instead of nakedness, we are gifted clothing. Instead of banishment, we are gifted a seat at the table. Instead of a snake, we are gifted a fish. Instead of condemnation, we are gifted the love of a father. Just like Mephibosheth deserved death, we deserve death. And yet, through Jesus Christ, the father looks at us and sees righteousness. Even more says, you have a seat at my table. That is the greatest gift in the history of gift giving ever. And we have access to it. So that concludes the first point. I promise the next two are not that long. Um, I know you're like, wow, he meant 53 minutes. Um, It's not gonna be like that. So point two, this is gonna be in verse 12. Jesus calls us to love others counterculturally. So when we look at verse 12, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So or therefore, it's a classic Christian preacher saying, I'm not gonna say it, you know what it is. It's a reference point back. So when he says, so, we reference back um, It's gonna be, he's referencing chapter seven, verses one through seven, talking about judging others. So he's talked about do not judge others. So now he's referencing that. Do not judge to say the point of, instead of judging, treat them as you wish you would be treated. Martin Lloyd-Jones here is helpful. He summarizes and says, God gives us a command to not judge. Then he reminds us of his graciousness to sinners. And so now do unto others as you would do unto yourself when you would ask for something. Be gracious to others' needs because God is gracious to our needs. A great way to think about this, there's a difference in driving your car the speed limit as a way to protect other people. Like, oh, I'm going within the speed limit, I'm protecting people. It's another thing to see someone with a broken down car on the side of the road and pull over and help them. There's a difference in just protecting people and meeting people where their need is. And so in Luke 6, there's a reference to this. And what Jesus says is, love your enemies, do unto others, focus on your enemies. And so what he's saying here is, this is the counterculture. In our culture, if someone wrongs you, the thing to do is pick up a sword and fight back. But what God is calling is a countercultural sense here. Our love of other people points to something different within us. And so essentially, just to break this down a little more, we love ourselves and want the best for ourselves. Therefore, Jesus is saying the same love, hope, and safe wishing you have for yourself, you should have that for others as well, especially those who don't deserve it. We should have the same love, hope, 
and well-being we wish for ourselves, for others, especially the ones who don't deserve it. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul is telling the Christians to not eat food sacrificed to a false god, not because they don't have the right to do it. They have the right because those gods don't exist. But what Paul is saying is look at those around you who see you as a Christian and you're partaking in the same thing that they are. Lay that down. So in this same sense, the people that have wronged us, that deserve what is coming to them, lay that down for the betterment of them. And so he references, this is the law and the prophets. We need a correct view of the law before we can understand how this summarizes the law. A correct view of the law was not viewing a limitation on life. The correct view of the law is saying the God who created all things has a better understanding of how they are to function. God gives us beautiful things. But when we take them out of their purposes, when we take them out of their context, we create something evil. What if God sets those boundaries to protect the beautiful nature of what he originally created? The law and the message of the prophets is God saying, this is what I created. This is how it is to function. Anything outside of this will result in nothing but evil. Jesus knows the law and prophet's message was to command people to a higher calling and viewpoint in living. The law was never meant to be mechanical or moralistic. Do this. Here's the standard. If you can't meet it, then you're not good enough. It was called to be spiritual. It was called to be a connection point between God and his people. The Pharisees, they saw the law as mechanical. If we do this, then God will owe us. Yet in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but I say to you, there was oftentimes when Jesus says, you have heard, but then he says, I say to you. And then he directs the law to impact their hearts below the surface of their actions. Jesus is saying, what if the core of your actions is worse than breaking the law? What if the rebellion in your heart is worse than the actions it causes? What if the root of these actions is more evil than you know or you will recognize? So as we understand that, that God has given us these things to protect something beautiful that he created, then the law tells us not to covet, murder, steal, commit adultery, because we are called to love one another. God calls us to love one another. All of those things that we are called not to do would be distorting what love is. It would actually be the opposite of what love is. So just as you value your family or loved ones or people you work with coming to know Christ, you should value the annoying coworker coming to Christ. Or the person that you could never forgive because of how they hurt you. Looking at them and saying, you are valuable. And I'm gonna lay down an attack on you to say that God has something great for you. And if me loving you is a representation of that, then I wanna do it even if it hurts. Or maybe it's looking at the other side of the political spectrum and saying, you know what, you deserve love too. We have to admit, if someone is undeserving of grace, then we have to point the finger at ourselves and say we are undeserving of grace. And that's true, we don't deserve it. But the assurance of Romans tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have to be good enough. We didn't have to be at a certain place. All we had to do was come before the cross and admit that we can't do it. And that's all that Jesus is saying here is to help bring people before the cross by exemplifying my love that I showed you. If we loved everyone like Christ loved us, this world would be a lot different. And then notice, it doesn't say do unto others so that they will do unto you in return. This is about sacrifice and service for others without expecting a response. This is not going to Starbucks and saying, you know what, let me buy the car behind me so that next time I come, the car in front will buy it for me and I get it free. That's not what it's saying. 
Luke 6.35 says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you'll be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Would you describe yourself as kind to the evil? Would you describe yourself as kind to the ungrateful? Jesus is calling us to love others because we were first loved. We can love even our enemies because we desire to be loved as well. As we love those whose society or culture deems unlovable, we express the graciousness of God in loving sinners. We didn't deserve the love of Christ, yet he was gracious enough. We can look at those who we deem undeserving and present them with love. Our last point, point three, Christ calls us to live differently. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So from here to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does a two option approach. This is like the commercial of you can get with this or you can get with that kind of approach. Like there's two options there, get with one, get with the other. Um, and so he starts here with two roads. And then the next we see two trees, then we see two hearts, then we see two builders. Jesus is painting a contrasting picture of here's one option, here's the other. They are plain and clear different. There's no crossing over. They are separate completely. And so the disciples are being encouraged to enter the narrow gate, knowing it will lead to persecution, hurt, and sacrifice. Because your life will be found at the end of this road, not on the easy road. And as you see Jesus speaking of this road, knowing soon he is going to be walking this road himself. A road of persecuting, mocking, and a road that would cost him his life. The gate is narrow because Jesus commands restrictions such as when he says do not or judge not or do not be anxious. When he says I say to you, at this point he's referencing the previous portion of the Sermon on the Mount to set up the ending. So now let's look at these two roads side by side. The wide gate, the wide gate does, not lead to accept, does lead to acceptance on earth but it does not lead to an eternal acceptance. In a few verses next week, you'll we'll hear, Jesus is going to look at some people who did some amazing works and what he's gonna say is, depart from me, I never knew you. That's an eternal separation, depart from me. So what are some characteristics of the, the wide gate? This is gonna be, there's gonna be many voices, what we would call subjective truth, it's gonna be a personal truth of what's true for me isn't true for everyone. It's not a public truth. There's no such thing as truth for everyone. Um, we look at Jesus, he's just another good teacher. Um, if we follow what Jesus says, we'll be better. And if we're all good people, then in the end, it'll all work out. All religions have a little bit of the same truth and it's, we're all on the same mountain getting to the top. Everybody's just coming from different perspectives. What that is, is inviting people in on this path to feel more solidified in our lifestyle. I just need more people to say, do you. If enough people say, do you, it's okay, then maybe I'll believe it. What this road's gonna say about scripture is that it's a good moral guide. Do it, be good. If everyone would do it, we would all be better people. Or maybe you look at scripture and you look at the red letters and say, you know what, only the red letters matter. Those are only the ones that Jesus said. Everything else doesn't matter or it's outdated. No one interprets it that way anymore. The Bible is just not relevant anymore. That's gonna be a very wide road approach. And the promise is that that road is easy. There's no stands for truth. There's no standing for what Jesus has said. There's no submitting to the text to guide us. What that actually is, is here's my opinion. Now let me find or manipulate a scripture to support what I have to say. 
what we know about the wide gate, according to Jesus, is that it leads to destruction. This is gonna be a general sense and a specific particular sense. Generally, personally, socially, morally, and ultimately eternally, it leads to an empty and void life. Is why a lot of us in this room have gotten to a place before we came to know the Lord where we said, man, it just feels like my life is empty. The wide road is full of empty people seeking something more. And then there's a particular sense, and that particular sense of destruction is an eternity separated from God. And so now we look at the narrow gate in kind of the same way we're going to look at what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about Scripture? So the narrow gate, the reason it's small is there's one way to enter what we would call the uniqueness of Jesus Christ in salvation. This is an objective truth. The gate is narrow because the only way to enter is through the life and work of Christ himself. There is no other way to eternal salvation. No moralistic being good enough. No other religions. Only Jesus. The gate is narrow because there's only one way through Christ and Christ alone. It would be what we call the sufficiency of Scripture. The road is narrow because Scripture has a calling upon our life to be more than just what we see. We are called to a higher purpose in life and Scripture is our daily guide in that. What it would say is, here's what the Word of God says. Now let me use this to guide me as I wrestle with hard, real questions but I'm going to submit to what the scripture has to say. And most important, it leads to life abundantly and everlasting on this earth and in eternity. And abundant life is not exclusively monetary. It's not that God has a fortune and a Mercedes waiting for you at the end. What it is, is being able to look at Citigroup and say, I am known and I am loved and I love these people and this is enough. That's an abundant life. Looking at your family or your friends and saying, I am loved and I'm known and I have enough. And more importantly, is looking at a God who gives good gifts and saying, God, you are enough. The narrow gate leads to life, same, general. It leads to a life of meaning and purpose because these are found within enjoying God himself, enjoying the presence of God. And specifically, it leads to an eternal life. Eternity is real. And what we see in this scripture is we're gonna hear one of two things. We're gonna hear well done or we're gonna hear depart from me. We can walk the narrow road because ahead we see Jesus. He was mocked, ridiculed, broken, beaten, and for the joy set before him endured the cross, the joy of an eternity with us. Jesus said, that's enough, I'll do it, even if it costs me my life. We can look down the road to the promise of eternal life and joyfully walk the road even if it hurts. It can feel lonely. I encourage you to look up at Life Transformation Group, City Group, and right now, look, you're not alone. The narrow road is not a lonely road. It is a road large enough for the body of Christ walking in unison for a common purpose for the glory of God. I wanna say that again. The narrow road is large enough for the body of Christ walking in unison for a common purpose for the glory of God. We are not alone. And so if we believe God is a father who only gives good gifts, then we must see treating others as ourselves in the narrow road as a good gift. And we must see prayer as a good gift. More than that, being heard in our prayer is a good gift. Even those who we have deemed deserving of a cruel punishment, we were once deemed deserving of a cruel punishment and those who have used their words to attack us, yet we have to think that at one point our voice was the mocking voice calling out, crucify him. Even those who have hurt us beyond repair, our sins led to the broken body of Christ. If anyone is deserving of punishment, we are. We have this power to love others more than we can ever imagine through Christ. 
The ability to love others is a representative way of Christ loving the church through sacrifice is a good gift. It can be painful, hard, and it requires patience, but it is good. The narrow road can feel lonely, can be very tiring, and it requires us to die to ourselves. But the good gifts are we aren't alone on this road. We can find rest. And at the end of the road, even if it just looks like a little glare, there is eternity with God who will embrace us and say, well done. And that's enough. And so one of the ways we remind ourselves of this truth is through communion. And there'll be directions on the screen, but I encourage you as the bread is torn for you and you dip the bread in wine or grape juice, take a second to look at this and say, God, your broken body and your blood shed is a good gift. And then present the Lord with an ask. And we can trust that whether he answers or not, it doesn't change whether he loves us or not. Let us pray. God, you are so, so, so good. And when we look at our brokenness, you see through Christ righteousness. God, there is no other way to be saved other than the life and work of Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And so God, as we come to take communion, I pray that you would remind us of this truth and that we would leave here knowing we can approach you with a ask for anything and God, you will answer with a good gift. Bread and stone, they look similar, God, but bread nourishment nourishes, a stone breaks. So God, we trust that you will always give us bread that will nourish us. Father, we ask all of these things through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.